LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working, the podcast. On this show, I sit down with a colleague from the LinkedIn News team, and we tease out lessons from a recent interview I've done with a thought leader on my LinkedIn video series, This Is Working. Today, I'm joined by guest host and LinkedIn tech editor, Tanya Dua. Today, we're talking about an outsider's perspective. We're talking about lessons leaders need to know in how to embrace AI and about finding your North Star. All big takeaways from my recent conversation with Dr. Fei-Fei Lee. We'll kick things off in just a minute. Stick around. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Here's Tanya now. Hi, Tanya. Hey, Dan. How are you doing? I am doing very well. I just celebrated my puppy's first birthday on Friday. How do you celebrate a puppy's birthday? What does that mean? You put up a happy birthday sign. Yeah. You let him have as much sugar as possible until it makes him sick. We played a bunch of, you know, games as well where he had to dig through and find his treats. Do you think that dogs know it's their birthday? I don't know if they know it's their birthday, but I read somewhere that their intelligence is that of a two-year-old. Yeah. So I think they know it's something special. Right. And they're like, oh, I'm getting treated extra well today. So Tanya, in her day job, does not just focus on animal intelligence and psychology. She's the editor of our tech newsletter, TechStack, which is a great read. Everyone should subscribe to it. You interview VCs. You talk to tech leaders about the latest happenings in the tech industry. This impacts all of us, whether we are in tech or not, because at this point, all of us are in tech. And all of us are also now in AI, which really has to do with our topic today, Tanya, I wanted to make sure you were sitting here at the table to talk about Fei-Fei Li because I know this is an area that you're an expert in, and Fei-Fei had so much to say about AI and how to implement AI. Yeah, absolutely. She's been one of the pioneering leaders of the field. She has worked in academia. She's worked in Google. She's worked in healthcare. So she kind of brings a really varied perspective. And I think she's also, I would call her an optimistic a rational optimist when it comes to AI, because there's two really opposing camps today. There are those that believe we're doomed and AI is going to be the end of humanity. And then there's those that talk about all the promises. And she's somewhere in the middle. And she really talks about sort of harnessing AI, but keeping humans at the center of it. She built a massive data set called uh, ImageNet and started the ImageNet Challenge. This was the first way that we had enough data to be able to train these large language models and started making all of these discoveries with AI and really like built the modern AI world. She is a immigrant from China. She came to America at the age of 15, didn't speak any English, worked her way up, went to Princeton. She was highly sought after by every university And she wrote a book about her experience called The World's I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI. So let's jump right into this conversation. What's your take on Fei-Fei's view of the world? I think it's really important to talk about how she talks about being an outsider. I'm an outsider. I'm an immigrant. That resonated with me a lot. And it's not something that just happens physically, right? You can also adopt an outsider mindset to everything you do. 
your your work, when you're trying to learn a new hobby, when you're trying to problem solve in a new way. It's something that's helpful across various aspects of life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I thought that was my biggest takeaway from listening to the book. And the thing that I want to talk to her about the most is what kind of unfair advantage does she have by being an outsider? I know it worked against her in some ways, but it really worked for her. It meant that she could ask much harder questions, that she could challenge everything because she was coming at it from an entirely new angle. And she had the ability to say, like, wait, why is this done this way? I don't get it. So let's listen to what she had to say about being an outsider. So I actually think this is the grown-up Feifei reflecting, because as a young teenager coming to this new world, I did not have that self-awareness. But I, I actually think there is a philosophical parallel between being an outsider, being an immigrant, exploring an unknown world, America, a new home, and the parallel is to the science as a young scientist, right? Because you're exploring an unknown world. The, the common thread is that unknownness. And how do you navigate an unknown world, whether it's as an immigrant or as a scientist? There's a few ingredients. One is curiosity. You have to be wanting to know, to learn, to find your way, and to look for things that uh, captures you. The other common thread, which I attribute a lot to the people around me, like my parents and early teachers who gave me that support, is a courage to not be afraid. Mm. You know, when you are a 15-year-old dropped in the middle of New Jersey and uh, trying to learn the language and, and navigate a public high school, there's a lot of scary things, right? You, you, somehow I was lucky to have the courage to not be afraid. And being a scientist is really about not being afraid. You have to be fearless in your curiosity and your pursuit of ideas. Anything that holds you back from your curiosity will not be helpful to that pursuit. So Tanya, you said that you really identify with this outsider's perspective. Tell me more. Yeah, I mean, I am an immigrant myself. I did not have it easy. It's really hard to be away from your family, your home, and have to figure it out all on your own. I came here at the age of 21, a little later than Feifei, but still a lot to figure out. I have not known what it is to be an adult in my home country. I had to get a job. I had to figure out immigration stuff. But I think it's also a perspective I really tap into at work. So one example that comes to mind that is fairly recent is a project I worked on with a bunch of people from different teams, engineers, linguists, project managers, you name it. And it was to develop new AI tools for LinkedIn. And they brought me in to do prompt engineering. Engineering, I always ran away from that word or math or anything to do with science. But I think they thought I could be helpful as an outsider. Mm -hmm. And that really pushed me to embrace that outsider mindset. So I remember we were once trying to get the LLM to respond to something. We were basically giving it, you know, two, three lines, and it had to spit out a rough first draft of something that someone was trying to say. And it would always get the order wrong. It would always put something really obscure as the starting point. So I went back to the basics and I was like, hey, why don't we tell it to follow the journalist sort of the inverted pyramid structure? And there you go. It kind of figured it out. So I think the lesson from that was that you need to embrace that 
outsider mindset. And people will actually rely on that and embrace it if you are not scared to run away from it. So, Tanya, two things that you mentioned, two things that Fei-Fei really talked about is that the outsider's perspective is not in and of itself good or necessary. It's the curiosity and the courage that you have to have with that. Being an outsider and standing on the sidelines and saying, like, I'm not part of this, that doesn't benefit anyone. doesn't even benefit you. But if you have the curiosity to ask the questions and try to understand what's going on in the room, in your case, in the room where this new project was being born, or in Fei-Fei's case, where she was looking at studying physics or studying AI, she had a ton of curiosity about it. But the other part, which I think is even more important, is courage. And I can imagine, and I've been in the position where I've been in rooms, where I felt like I was an outsider. In fact, I was definitely an outsider. And trying to muscle up the courage to be able to ask the question to people who are experts is really hard. And I think it's hard, especially hard if you're an immigrant and you are new to this area, but it's hard for everyone. You're new in a job, you're new in a role, you're new in a project, and you feel like, I can't say anything. But if you can couple that outsider's perspective with the curiosity and have the courage to make your voice heard, magic can happen. Magic can happen not just for you, but for the project. In your case, you built a better LLM for us because you asked hard questions and you brought in new knowledge that people in the room didn't have. In Fei-Fei's case, she reinvented how AI works through her outsider's perspective. These are amazing things, and I think all of us can harness it. You don't have to be born in a different country. You just have to realize that being new in a room or not fitting in a room can be your superpower. It's not a disadvantage. I mean, you've talked to multiple people that have done that in the business world, too. Everett Taylor started off in marketing, is now the CEO of Kickstarter. Exactly. Um, In the venture capital world, Michael Moritz, right? Sequoia, one of the biggest VC firms in the world. So I think... And he was at time as a journalist before then. Exactly. And I think what it comes down to is that if you ask dumb questions, that's not a disadvantage. People actually like educating people, sharing their information, and and talking about it. Nobody sort of will shun you off if you're trying to learn. But I think this goes a step beyond that, which is you can ask dumb questions, but if you can also bring in smart answers from other parts of your life, then you can help bring worlds together. You always have something to to bring into the conversation. Totally. Totally. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and we'll come back to talk more about the conversation with Dr. Fei-Fei Lee. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. So the meat of my conversation with Faith A really centered around how businesses should think about AI and why it's so important to think about AI as one tool in the toolbox. AI is not something that is being just foisted on us. We are making choices about how we build AI and how we implement AI in our companies. And I wanted to know from Fei-Fei how she would encourage business leaders to make sure that they are bringing humanity with them when they are bringing AI into their companies. Here's what she had to say. First of all, we should recognize AI is a tool. We, we really need to understand our relationship with tool, right? Humans create tools with the intention to help 
humans. But we have that agency and we have that ownership of that tool. We need to recognize that. But tools are double-edged swords. And how do we ensure in business setting, in other settings, that we're using this tool in the right way? At the Human Center AI Institute at Stanford, we have this three concentric circle way of thinking about AI's human relationship, the individual at the heart of it, community, as well as society. And as a business, I think this is a great framework, a great human-centered framework to think about AI as a tool, as a product, as a service, is what its impact to individuals, for every individual. Like we talk about their dignity, their self-respect, their productivity, and all that. Then we think about what the impact is to, implication is to community especially community that are traditionally overlooked, underserved, and all that. We have to have a keen awareness of that. And then the impact to the society, whether it's intended impact, like if I'm changing mobility and driving, that's an intended impact. But also unintended impact, for example, the disruption of jobs of truck drivers. I'm just giving examples. But if we put it in that framework, I think at least it's a it's a good starting point for businesses to to think about how to approach this. I think as a business in 21st century, in the second decade of 21st century, given where this technology is, educating yourself, embracing AI is business responsible because it's hard to imagine any business will not receive impact for, or influence from AI. So it's very clear from what Fei-Fei is saying, from everything that we're seeing in the news, that AI is with us. It is not going away. It is going to be part of how we live and very much a part of how we do business. Tanya, can you give us a sense of just how front and center it is already? Absolutely. I mean, everybody and their mother was using ChatGPT, and it was just launched in the fall of 2022. Uh, In terms of enterprises, 2023 was the year of AI adoption. 55% of global organizations adopted AI in some form or the other, according to a McKinsey and Company report. In the U.S., that was even higher. 73% of companies did something to do with AI. And there's data from LinkedIn as well. We have the Jobs on the Rise report, which looks at the 25 top rising jobs. And AI consultant comes in at number eight. And AI engineer comes in at number 10. One of the things that I've felt with this entire fast-moving AI revolution is it sometimes feels like AI is a virus or a natural phenomenon that is just coming down on us. But this is something that we have a choice in how we implement it and what we do and how we bring it into our companies and into our lives. And you, I think it's, I think AI is going to have this profound impact, how we work. It's going to make jobs easier in a lot of cases. It's going to make jobs go away in some cases, but we can make those calls. Leaders can make those calls in where they want to invest their AI resources and how they want to put this into effect. So have you seen in any of your reporting leaders thinking about this or wrestling with some of these questions? Absolutely. I was at a conference recently and the CIO of Abbott, which is a big healthcare company, was talking about 
this very concept of how it's really exciting and they're running a bunch of pilots, but they also have to keep ethical guardrails and considerations in mind, particularly healthcare, heavily regulated. They make products like pacemakers. So security and data privacy are so important because can you imagine what could go wrong with pacemakers if it got in the hands of bad actors? And this is something that is not just limited to the enterprise. The government is thinking about it. We had the big AI executive order end of last year. There are civil society groups like All Tech is Human that constantly meet and talk about this very thing, that this is not something that you're embracing in isolation. There has to be an overarching way to think about things involving the government, involving companies, involving civil society. One of the things that Fei Fei talks about in her book is the experience she had in trying to bring AI into the healthcare world. And she came in, and Fei Fei's very, she's not somebody who comes in assuming that she's the smartest person in the room. We've talked about this outsider perspective. But in the case of hospitals, even that wasn't enough. There was so much that was different about how a hospital works that she had to learn by going on rounds with doctors. And she then insisted that all of her students, before they do anything in a hospital, should spend time in the in the hospital with the surgeons, with the nurses, with the administrators to understand how these places work. And what she was trying to do was tease out the principles for how a company operates and the expectations for what patients or customers wanted out of that workplace. And I think that's essential, is having this understanding of what your customers want to get out of your business, understanding what are the needs for your employees, and then you bring AI into it. But just letting AI loose and saying, we'll just do whatever the AI can do, like that's the wrong way to go about it. You have to work from first principles. How do we make sure that we are doing what we want to do on this in this world? So for Abbott, thinks about healthcare opportunities. How do you save lives? I don't know what their principles are, but you start with the principles and then you put AI to think about how can we advance our vision and our mission faster with the help of AI, not how do we just use this new fun tool in cool ways. Another example, Dan, is customer service. Everybody is talking about how customer service is going to be the first function to undergo a massive change. But here's one way to think about it. Customer service online, let's say you're talking to a chatbot. That's a seamless experience, right? You can use AI to pull up all the details that this customer doesn't want to search for, give them exactly the answer they need. But if they're calling your call center, they've probably done that and they still have a question. At that point, if you're calling a call center and you hear an AI voice, you're going to be furious. You're probably making that call because you want to talk to a human on the other end of the line. Hmm. So there's sort of two sides to a coin. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the AI, what we've seen with GAI is that it's getting good enough that I'm not sure you can necessarily tell anymore whether that's a human on the other side, or at least within the next year, you might not be able to tell. I would argue that the way that you look at it is, does the computer do a good enough job? Does the AI do a good enough job that it can actually make the customer happier? And your life easier. And your life easier. And if, But you start with the customer. If, the, if it makes the customer happier, you've got a good thing going. If it makes the customer more, more furious, then that's the wrong thing to do, even if it saves you money. It is going to cost you more money in the end. So I just say start with principles, bring AI in, but remember that we have the choice and how we put AI into our workplaces, and how we bring them into our processes, and that is how this is going to spread. 
yeah, like I'm not going to use AI to do my interviews for me, but I am going to use it to transcribe my interviews for me because that's a really, really mundane task that honestly I would not want to spend four hours doing. Exactly. And I'm going to ask anyone listening to this to let us know on LinkedIn using the hashtag this is working on how you plan to use AI in your own life. Near the end of our time together, I asked Fei-Fei about how she makes career decisions, and she talked about the importance of purpose. She called it identifying her North Star. But I also asked her, what do you do if you can't identify that North Star? So here's what she had to say. I think what happens for someone like me is I do identify a North Star at different stages of my life, and sometimes they differ, obviously, right? But once I have that North Star... All these decisions, the size of the paycheck or the apartment I should rent, they become less important because how I make decisions will be orienting towards the North Star that really matters to me. What had been challenging was there's the North Star, but there is duties of life. And for me, it was taking care of my parents. And that was a huge constraint. And even when you're going after the North Star, that's something I had to carry. And that did create challenges. But somehow, I think it also built character. It also grounded me as a person, not just technologist. In hindsight, everything from the dry cleaners to taking care of an alien parents gave me the insight and extra dimensions of understanding of the world and the technology that is just so precious. But at the end of the day, decision-making for me is about seeking that North Star. And I think about that question as an educator, mm. as also, also as a parent for the younger people, there is a certain stage of life that they're more free and they're more um, curious. And, and that stage, um, if we can help them to channel that energy, is important. When my students come in, you know, I try to ask them, what do you really want to work on? What's important to you instead of the next paper deadline? You know, so so that's important. For grown-ups, I also think we can find North Star. We are more probably we're more complicated. <laughs> but in the meantime, our responsibility also is a great guiding light, right? Yeah. Sometimes that response for for example, as the book advanced, I morphed from a pure scientist to a scientist humanist mm -hmm. because I I was self-awakened somehow to recognize the human responsibility of AI. And that sense of responsibility guided me towards my next North Star. So, so I think we all can find our North Stars. This is a conversation that you've had a lot of times on this podcast, Dan. So you're a seasoned vet at this point. Do you have a North Star? How did you find it? I would say that I have found my North Star through doing. I think that this was something that, uh, you know, before I got this job, I had the the former CEO had asked me what I wanted to do. And it was the first time anyone had ever asked me that because I'd just been, I'd been all about, what Fei-Fei talks about, I was just like, deliver the next article, deliver the next article. And I didn't have to think about what my North Star was. And I realized that what I really loved doing was putting 
new information out into the world. I just loved giving people stuff that makes them start talking. That is all. That was is what my career North Star is. How do I get more people talking? And what I found is, and we've talked about this on the show too, is that you know when you have your North Star right because you get into that flow. You do stuff that makes you, it just feels effortless. Like if you're doing stuff and it's working, you have a big smile on your face, you can spend hours on it, you forget to go home, you know, you missed your train because you're still working and your whole family gets mad at you, but it was worth it because you loved what you were doing in that particular moment. So I didn't really know what my North Star was until pretty late in my career, even though I was already doing it. What about you? You stole the words out of my mouth because I think my North Star is also delivering new information to people and making them learn because I personally love learning. Now, where we differ is I knew pretty early on, I would say. My parents pushed me into a bunch of activities when I was young, so I tried it all. I tried the keyboard, I tried dancing, I tried singing, I tried theater, I tried swimming, I tried sports, you name it. Asian parents, they push you hard. But the thing that I enjoyed the most was picking up the newspaper every Sunday morning with my grandfather and reading what was happening in the world. And that translated into me reading the news in elementary school and doing theater and basically expressing myself in new ways. So by the time I was 13, I was pretty certain I wanted to be a journalist. But the the germ of the idea came, as you said, by trying multiple things and seeing what really makes you jump out of bed. Yeah, but I think that there's a difference between knowing your profession and knowing your North Star. And I think that was, I knew my profession also. What I didn't know was why I loved it and what I wanted to. And once you start figuring out what your North Star is, you can change professions. I was the exact same as you. I discovered I wanted to be a journalist as a teenager, and I was like, this is it. This is for me. And it was a limiting view of the world because I was assigning my future based on a job title. And I think that it was only realizing what my North Star was that I was able to see that I could go in a bunch of different areas. And that's freeing. It's not how colleges teach you. It's not how your parents push you. But if you can see the world in terms of what do I want to do more of and what gives me joy and gives me energy, then you can start thinking about other jobs to get into. I'll give you that. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a journalist pretty early on, but I think I arrived at this North Star when I decided to take the LinkedIn job. Because outside, people would be like, oh, so you're leaving traditional journalism. And to me, that was almost like an insult, right? And to me, it was like, no, I'm not leaving journalism. I'm just finding new ways of sharing information. And, you know, you aren't thinking out of the box because you're not looking at it that way. So I'll give you that. (laughs) Well, I would say to anyone else who is listening and thinking about what the North Star is, I'm going to give a plug to our new Jobs on the Rise report that came out this week and helps identify the jobs that are trending where if you are want to make sure that you're North Star lines up to where the market demand is, you can find your next job. You can start on a whole new career. This report is great. It has tons of amazing exclusive data. So I highly encourage people to check it out. And maybe it will even help you find your North Star if you don't know it already. Now that you've heard from Dr. Fei-Fei Li, how are you thinking about the role of AI in the workplace? How are you planning on bringing AI into the workplace? And also let us know how you're thinking about your North Star. You can post about this on LinkedIn using the hashtag ThisIsWorking or send me an email at ThisIsWorking at LinkedIn.com. Please share this podcast with a friend and review it. It helps us find new listeners. 
If you want to hear more from Dr. Fei-Fei Li, be sure to check out her video conversation with Dan on the LinkedIn News page. There's a link in the show notes. This is working as a production of LinkedIn News. Our team includes Sarah Storm, Stephen Valdivia, Asaf Gidron, Taisha Henry, Andreas Cordona, and Lolia Briggs. Joe DiGiorgi mixes our show, Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our head of original programming is Courtney Coop. I'm Tanya Dua, technology editor at LinkedIn. And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Be well and stay curious.